One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we hear direct from the ground in Ukraine, get the view from Brussels, and take the temperature of the Conservative Party as they start their annual conference in Manchester. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Monday, the 2nd of October, one year and 220 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by foreign reporter Colin Freeman, live from Ukraine, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and David Knowles from the Conservative Party conference in Manchester. I started with the latest updates from the front lines. Romania on Saturday reported a possible breach of its airspace during a Russian drone attack on on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure across the Danube. Romania, obviously a NATO member, alerted residents to take cover, quote, following the detection of groups of drones heading towards Ukrainian territory near the Romanian border. That was from the Defence Ministry. They said the radar surveillance system indicated possible unauthorised entry into national airspace with a signal detected on a route towards the municipality of Galati. Now, that town, Galati, is on the Danube, about 5Ks west of the point where Romania, Moldova and Ukraine meet. Romania's defence ministry said no objects appeared to have fallen in Romanian territory, but had folk out searching. Now, also on Friday, it was reported that Romania was moving air defences closer to Danube villages, obviously directly across the river from the areas in Ukraine where Uh, Russia has been attacking the grain facilities. We've talked about this before on the pod. They are also adding more military observation posts and patrolling the areas. They're also another US, uh, another four US F-16 jets are being being sent to the country. Britain sending another four to Poland, uh, four typhoons to Poland. They're expanding their coverage there. Obviously, this is all to do with the concern over any potential for the conflict, the war, to spill into into Romania. Now, the National Defence Ministry said on Saturday it was deploying police near the border. That was as the news of that that potential breach occurred. Then overnight on Saturday, Sunday, Ukraine's air defence unit said they shot down 30 of around 40 Russian drones launched from the south, southeast and north. 
Authorities said the central Ukrainian Cherkasy region was attacked quite heavily. That's right in the centre of the country. It's bordering, the region borders the, the Dnipro River, but bang in the centre of the country. And there are 10 more drones over the Odessa slash Mykolaiv regions down south, again going for, the, going for the grain facilities. So spokesperson for the Southern Command, Natalia Komenyuk, told Ukrainian TV that Russia continued to attack port infrastructure, including on the Danube River, and was also attempting to strike critical infrastructure facilities in other Ukrainian regions, in, in her words, to impact the economy. Now, three vessels, it's worth noting that whilst all this is going on, three vessels loaded with grain and iron ore have left the ports of Chonomorsk and Pivdeny. That's they're just outside, both of them just outside Odessa, but basically think Odessa ports, that's where we're talking. So three Three ships got out. Five cargo vessels are anchored outside the outside of Odessa, waiting to go in. Uh, this does continue the uptick in grain shipments we've seen in the last three-ish weeks or so. Uh, a breaking of the de facto blockade. Now it's not actually a blockade. We are into deep maritime legal territory here when we start talking about blockades and what have you. I did a defence in depth on it about three weeks ago-ish. You'll find that on YouTube. It explains what a blockade is, what a blockade is not, and what you can and can't do if a state of blockade is legally accepted to be in existence. It also explains, interestingly, why Russia was completely within its rights to board that ship. You remember the dramatic footage of a helicopter leave dropping troops onto a ship to go and board it and see what it was carrying entirely legal under the under the rule of law the law of the sea at the moment so go and have a look at the defense in depth thingy to for a better and deeper explanation as to why that was so but when it comes to the legality around blockades not everything is as you think whilst we're on the subject of drones according to defense express so this is a ukrainian based media outlet they've been crunching the numbers and they say that in september september was the highest saw the highest number of drones launched against Ukraine. So 503 launched, 396 shot down. Before that, they say the record was May, 413. But in June, it, it dropped right off, 197 and similar throughout the summer. They say the maximum pause between drone strikes in September was only two days. But they note the effectiveness of the Shahids, the 131 and the 136, increases when more than around 40 of them are launched at a time. So in those instances, Ukraine, when more than 40 Shahids are launched at them, Ukrainian air defence manages to shoot down about three quarters of them. But when there's fewer than 20, they are they're almost 100% efficient. So wipe everything out under 20, get up towards 40, and it, and it starts tailing off an interesting stat and just makes the case for more air defence need to be sent and continue to be sent to Ukraine. Now, separately, Russia was targeted by another wave of Ukrainian drones and shelling on Sunday. Now, Russian officials said it was drones and shelling. They say wounded three people, forced an airport to divert flights. So the governor of Russia's Belgorod region, this is down south bordering Ukraine, Vashilev Gladkov, who said on Sunday morning, the armed forces of Ukraine shelled the area of the central market in Shebekino. Now, I can't find any other evidence that the central market was hit. This is what they're what he's saying. Shebekino, that's halfway-ish between Kharkiv in Ukraine and Belgorod in Russia. It's just over the border. It's about 5Ks inside the Russian border. A couple more things. Firstly, so Congress, the potential shutdown of Congress and the government shutdown was put off for another 45 days, but that meant the 
and the additional $6 billion provision for Ukraine has to be taken out and is going to be dealt with separately. It will almost certainly go through, but it was it's getting the attention, getting the headlines because it was seen as the government shutdown would continue if this thing hadn't been removed. It, it As we've said before, as we've heard before, it, it, there's a a minority, very vocal minority of the Republican Party who are who are increasingly against. I don't know if they're against aid to Ukraine or they just see it as um, getting political mileage. But anyway, Joe Biden pleaded with Congress over the weekend to um, urgently approve more funds for Ukraine. He said he was speaking on yesterday in the Roosevelt Room in the White House. He said Ukrainians would die needlessly if funding was allowed to run dry from mid-November. He said we have time, not much time. And there's an overwhelming sense of urgency. And then he said, look at me, stared straight down the barrel of the camera and said, we're going to get it done. Yeah, no, no doubt where he's coming from. Ukraine yesterday said it was working with, with the US, with Washington, to ensure the supply of aid continued. The Ukrainian foreign ministry spokesman Oleg Nikolenko said the Ukrainian government is now actively working with its American partners to ensure the new U.S. budget decision, which will be developed over the next 45 days, includes new funds for Ukraine. And then just finally, President Zelensky has said that he wants to turn Ukraine into a defence hub. He was hosting representatives of more than 250 Western weapons producers. He said he wants to turn the country's defence industry into a large military hub through partnerships. He said Ukraine is in such a phase of the defence marathon Interestingly, he highlights that. Such phase of the defence marathon, when it is very important, critical to go forward without retreating. Results from the front line are needed daily. We are interested in localising production of equipment needed for our defence. Now, we know BAE Systems have recently opened, reopened an office, which may be one person on a phone. At least they've gone public on that. So we will see how, how Ukraine attempts to expand it. the defence infrastructure, industrial the industrial infrastructure there. Anyway, that's enough for me. Let's now go. Delighted to have Colin Freeman, our from reporter in Ukraine. You've been, Colin, you've been, we're hearing today that Russia launched 71 attacks in the past 24 hours. And there was shelling in Hezon last night, which killed one, injured six, including two children. That came from the regional governor. You've just been there, Colin. You're now uh, elsewhere. But what have you been seeing recently? And, and what can you tell us? Yes, I was down in Kherson for most of last week. And I must say, it was there was a lot of shelling there on most of the nights we were there. My sleep, not that's particularly important, was interrupted regularly by shelling. Some of it outgoing, as in some of it from Ukrainians firing over the river Dnipro to where the Russians are, but quite a lot of it coming our way as well. I think at one point I've I spent long enough in Kherson with this shelling going on to actually be able to distinguish for once the difference between incoming and outgoing fire, I think, with the incoming, there tends to be a sort of whistling sound. And I think on one evening, I think it was Thursday evening of last week, I heard in the space of two or three hours, no fewer than about 20 separate whistles, followed by a loud bang and a crash on our side of the river, on the Kherson side. Just to give you a snapshot, that was the 20 shells landing in the city, a city of about 300,000 people in the space of just a few hours. And nobody around me battered an eyelid. This was entirely entirely normal business by Kherson standards these days. Just to refresh listeners' memories, Kherson was the first city 
example, one of one of the, the first major cities in Ukraine to to fall under Russian occupation back at the start of the war. It, the Russians then pulled out under Ukrainian pressure in November, but they only pulled out as far as the far bank of the the east or left bank of the river Dnipro, which Kherson sits on. And since then, they, they've shelled their former possession relentlessly from afar, as in the sense of if they can't have it, they won't let anybody else have it either. And in that time, I was speaking to an official just today, actually, from Kherson, asking them how many civilians had died in that time. 185 civilians have been killed, according to local Ukrainian officials, in the period between November of last year and now. That's just from this constant ongoing shelling of the city, not in any particular single catastrophic incidents, more just a case of one here, two there, just going on all the time. But it clearly mounts up after a while. Now, what else um, have you been noticing down there, Colin? Have you got an update? We haven't looked at the after effects of the the blowing of the Novokovka dam. Are you able to tell us what effect is, there is now? You were there just after the dam went and you reported on the where the water had reached and the, and the damage and devastation it had caused. What's the situation there now? And what's the ground like? Is it hard enough to take armoured vehicles, do you think? As to whether it can take armoured vehicles, I'm not quite sure. But certainly that was why we were down in Kherson, was primarily to report on how the city has recovered since the floods. Again, just to remind listeners, the floods were back in June when the Novokakovka Dam, which is about 160 miles further up, the River Dnipro, a vast Soviet-era construction, was blown up, we think, by Russian saboteurs. And that released an area of water, a a volume of water, about twice the volume of Loch Ness, which is Loch Ness in Scotland, Britain's largest lake, 23 miles long, a mile wide and a 1,000 feet deep. Imagine how much water is in there. That came torrenting down the Dnipro. When I was there, it was like watching the Amazon in the rainy season. There were standing waves. There were trees being dragged along by the force of the water. It, it roar. You could hear the roar from a distance. And much of Kherson, especially the sort of downtown area by the docks where there's some residential housing, a little bit like the Isle of Dogs on the River Thames, if that rings any bells with anyone. Much of that area was submerged. There was housing blocks submerged right up to the for, for the first floor and the second floor. Since then, when back then when people were wandering, just sailing around in boats uh, up and down the streets, since then the water has the water levels have receded. It took about a fortnight, apparently. And now if you wander around, it looks back to normal ostensibly until you step into people's homes. And for those who haven't got round yet to clearing their homes out, and there's a lot who haven't because of the shelling, uh, you know, it, it, it is an absolute mess. We went into one guy's house. It stank of mildew. The, um, you know, he hasn't had time to even clear out his possessions yet because he was busy repairing the roof, which was nearly dragged off by the floodwaters. And it, it looks basically as if the inside of the house, someone has has been put in a, a tumble dryer full of dirty, muddy water and everything just shaken around. It, it, it is, it, if you think the fl- flooding in, in the UK, for example, where you might get two or three feet of water in a house is bad, it is nothing on this. Frankly, I was amazed that he was even carrying on rather than just writing his house off. But he's been there for 30 years and said, I'm not giving up now. Similarly, we went to somebody else's house, who uh, a woman who had had actually finished cleaning the place out. 
had just got it looking reasonably newly spick and span. And then just on Wednesday, a Russian artillery shell landed on the neighbor's house, wrecked all her windows, shrapnel fragments that, 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 came, that, that came into her house, and also burst a, a water pipe, which meant that her home was flooded for a second time. So, yeah, uh, people having really up against it there. And these are the folk who've actually come back to try and rebuild their houses to, to do them up again. A local council councillor told us that a lot of people just simply aren't coming back at the moment because of the shelling, which is so often, which is so intense. And so of those 4,000 homes that were reflect, affected by the flooding, a substantial number have not had people trying to come home and repair them. That means they're still damp, they're still waterlogged. And of course, we have winter coming around the corner when temperatures in Kherson are about minus five on average each day. So you can imagine a lot of those homes are probably not really going to be, they're not going to be in a good state after a winter like that. And there's every possibility, I think, that a lot of them will have to be demolished long term. Yeah, sounds like it. Now, if you are wondering whether or not the ground can take can take a tank, you need to get yourself a big stick. So the reason that the Royal Tank Regiment officers carry blackthorns, which are big, old, gnarly old sticks about a metre long, is because Monty, General Monty, Bernard Montgomery, used to carry one in the Second World War. And I believe it's because... Uh, a big, uh, about a metre long stick, if you could push that into the ground down to your knuckle, then the ground is too soft to be able to take a tank. So tank commanders always used to have these things to, if you're at all unsure if you're going to make it across that little bit of boggy stuff or what have you, to go and uh, go and shove these sticks around. You could do, get your divining rods out, Colin, is my advice there, and start uh, poking around for tanks. Just finally, before I go to Joe, Colin, some time ago, there were reports of Ukrainian forces across the the river in the opposite Hezon and on the eastern bank, on the left bank. And there was some talk for quite a few days, at least 10 days, if not a couple of weeks, that there was a lodgehead being held on the on the other side of the river. We've not heard anything there for a little while. Are you able to tell us anything about Ukrainian projection of force over the river? Yes, we did speak to some people in, in, in the local military who can, who said that they, they did now have a foothold on the far, on on the Russian held side of the river Dnipro Kherson is joined at the far side of the Dnipro by the Antonovsky bridge which the Russians blew up as they retreated and that was really the only major crossing in the area we were asking how have you managed to get across then if you've if you've not been able to use the bridge and the answer we got was we've done this by by sailing groups of troops over in small boats and just by sheer dint of effort and also by using drones. So I don't think tanks and heavy armour have, have probably been that instrumental, certainly in in terms of that they would not have been able to cross over the bridge. But yeah, the, they did seem to state, as a matter of fact, that there are troops, Ukrainian forces now hold the, the Russian side of the bridge and that they have pushed the Russians further back. The, the nearest town on the Russian side where the bridge goes over is a place called Oleshki, and that's, they've pushed the Russians back into Oleshki and the majority of their forces are now somewhere further behind Oleshke to the east. So, that, that, yeah, they, they did seem to think that, that that area is now a Ukrainian foothold. What they seemed less certain about was what was going to happen next. I spoke to one fairly senior commander who said, and he was, his quote was, that we're, we're bluffing a bit and so are they. The Russians are worried, think, think that we are going to send all our forces 
down into Kherson and over the into the Russians' controlled side to encourage the Russians to pull out forces from further north around Zaporizhzhia, where the the main thrust of the counteroffensive is. And they, uh, the Ukrainians, for their part, also worry that the Russians are going to concentrate lots of force down in Kherson, so that they might have to um, move their own Ukrainian forces further down from the counteroffensive. So it, it, it's a, it, it's, I think it's a bit like a two boxers fighting each other, both waving one big fist that they're going to wield a knockout blow with, but in the meantime, also um, wielding the other fist and saying this one might come your way as well. So you've got to be keeping an eye out and wondering which one is going to hit first. Yeah, I think that sort of speaks more broadly for the whole of the situation and, and down south especially. Colin, before we lose you, any any more um, any more updates you want to bring to us? Where are you heading to next? And when can we next hear from you? We hope to be heading to do some stuff around the sort of main area of the counteroffensive in the next few days. Access is necessarily limited. The sort of the area where the key thrust is around Tokmak is a, is a place that we've been told access is very difficult from, very difficult to get to. Whether that is because the Ukrainians simply say, simply feel that the fighting is very heavy there and they don't have time to drag reporters around or whether because things are perhaps not going their way that much there is one of these questions that we're constantly asking here. And I'm afraid we never really know the answer. So that the best thing to do for listeners is to be honest on that score, I think, rather than claim some omniscience that we don't have. No problem. You're always welcome to dial in whenever you like, Colin. Thanks so much for uh, speaking to us today. Do please, please take all the uh, all the precautions. I know you do, but just, yeah. I hope to hear from you soon, mate. Yeah, cheers. Hope to be back soon. Now then, Joe, Brussels correspondent, a lot going on Europe-wise. Let's talk a little bit of, you've got a bit of Robert Fico to talk about and then a bit of EU foreign ministers in Kiev and then something from Bulgaria. What, what are you looking at, Joe? So, yeah, let's start with the Slovakian elections. And I believe it's pronounced Robert Fico, but Robert Fico is the leader of a pro-Moscow populist left-wing party in Slovakia, which won the main share of the Slovakian elections on Sunday with about 24%. Interestingly, exit polls had suggested that the pro-Kiev, progress Slovakia party were actually on track to win the election, but it turned out the pollsters got it quite wrong. So Fico basically giving his victory speech, announced that he would open talks with other parties to form a coalition. And he made this announcement. We're here. We're ready. We've learned something. We're more experienced. That's referring to his second, his previous times in office. He's a two-time prime minister, is Robert Fico. He said he would do everything in his power to deliver peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. And he said more killing is not going to help anyone. Which, on the face of it, sounds quite positive. I'm sure lots of leaders and mainly Ukrainians would like to see peace. But what we do have to say is that Robert Fico is coming from a Russian standpoint, essentially. So and I think it's quite fair to say there will be quite a few people in Brussels today and going forward with concerns about what his election support, election victory means for the immediate support for Ukraine. But also, does his pro-Moscow outlook mean potentially losing Slovakia in the short term, maybe the long term, depends on how long he stays in power. Some people believe his coalition is going to be rather shaky, so it might need another election. But yeah, does it mean that we could lose Slovakia to the Kremlin at a time when Western unity is crucial? So why is it crucial in just 
in Brussels, the EU decision-making on Ukraine requires unanimity. That's a positive vote from each of the EU's 27 member states. There are a few immediate sort of decisions to be taken, which we can describe as major. Firstly, the EU has a planned dedicated 20 billion euro fund to keep Ukraine's military stocked and ready for the next four years. That hasn't been voted on yet and will require all 27 nations to sign up to. And then there is the decision expected in December on whether Ukraine can officially begin negotiations on its accession to the EU. So there's some really big decisions that need to be made. And without sort of unanimity with a potentially pro-Kremlin government inside the EU ranks, it's only going to make that more difficult. And then there, there, there are just smaller issues like will the EU get to or want to, no doubt I'm sure EU officials want to roll out another package of sanctions. So will they be able to do that when they have another pro-Moscow member in the EU's contingent? So we've, so FITSO's victory adds to that pro-Moscow contingent, which is mainly led by Hungary. And Viktor Orban, the Hungarian prime minister, was vocal in his support for Fizzo, no doubt. And unsurprisingly, he said, guess who's back? Congratulations to Robert Fizzo on his indisputable victory at the Slovak parliamentary elections. Always good to work with a patriot. Yeah, so that's EU decision making in limbo while Robert Fizzo is potentially going to be prime minister. But obviously, the EU isn't the only player in Brussels, not the only player in town. We have also NATO, the Western Military Alliance, is headquartered here in the Belgian capital. And Fizzo has argued that NATO led support for Ukraine undermines national sovereignty. Throughout his complaint, his camp, camp, campaign, sorry, he pledged an immediate end to Slovakia's military support for Ukraine. But in terms of NATO, he also promised to block. Ukraine's ambitions to join the Western Military Alliance. In the past, he has described Ukraine's potential accession to NATO as the beginning of World War III. So yeah, it doesn't sound particularly great for NATO kind of decision-making either, which again requires a consensus. It requires every, which is now 31, soon to be 32 members, to be signed up to the policy. But what does Fizzo and his election victory mean for Slovakia's support for Ukraine? That's an interesting one. Slovakia has been a huge backer of Ukraine. So before his victory, Slovakia, Slovakia was among Europe's top five donors to Kyiv in terms of gross domestic product, that's GDP. It donated more than half of its fleet of MiG fighter jets and sent dozens of infantry fighting vehicles to Kyiv, um, as well as becoming the first EU nation to back Ukraine with shipments of the Soviet-era S-300 surface-to-air missile system. You remember me speaking last week about how Ukraine was pushing for replacements of its Soviet-era missile systems and extra ammunition because they're essentially running out and Russia isn't going to sell them anymore. So losing the Slovaks as a donor is obviously a huge blow to Kyiv. But I think it also represents a blow to NATO and Western efforts to continue arming Ukraine simply because of geography. It's one of Slovakia is one of four main countries bordering Ukraine through Europe. And it's one of the routes used as a transit for military aid going into Ukraine. At times, there have been bottlenecks in shipments into Ukraine, with Slovakia being a key route, probably just behind Poland, into Ukraine. So Hungary, one of the other bordering countries, doesn't allow transit through its territory, although there are sort of some suspicions over this claim. Uh, so if Slovakia doesn't takes up that sort of Hungarian model of blocking transit, that is going to leave Poland as the and, and Romania as the only viable routes into the country. 
So it's, it's, it's a real multifaceted problem that sort of the EU and the West face with uh, a victory for a pro-Moscow leader. Um, and then let's go to Kyiv, where the European Union's foreign ministers are meeting um, in what is a really unprecedented meeting. Uh, historic is the first time, I believe, a European uh, foreign minister's meeting known as the Foreign Affairs Council has been held out of the European Union, let alone in a country that is gripped by war. Um, so ahead of this meeting, the European Union's top foreign diplomat, Joseph Borrell, said the EU support for Ukraine is not dependent on battlefield successes. He told journalists in Kyiv uh, last night that our support does not depend on the advances of one day. It's permanent structured support because we're facing an existential crisis for Europe. He went on to call this meeting historic. Um, as I mentioned, it's the first time EU foreign ministers have held the meeting outside of a bloc. So what are they there to discuss? They're there to discuss future support for Ukraine, including security guarantees. So what can the EU do to maintain security and the defence of Ukraine against Russian aggression? That's uh, earlier I mentioned the €20 billion Euro security fund. That will be on the table, but so will a smaller one of €500 million, Euros, which I'll come back to later. They're also there to discuss Zelensky's 10-point peace plan, as is always featured amongst Ukrainian diplomacy these days. And then there is the EU's enlargement eastwards and towards the Western Balkans, which will also be on the table. And as I mentioned earlier, the bloc is due and nearing a decision, as I said, likely December, to decide whether Ukraine can officially start its session talks. So lots of info and detail for foreign ministers from the EU to get stuck into. They're essentially setting the scene for what will be a discussion amongst European leaders in Granada next week, where I'll be reporting from in in Spain. And they, they hope to keep the accession talks on track for basically the EU's planned expansion for 2030. Interestingly, then ahead of this gathering, Mr. Burrell, Sir Joseph Burrell, told reports in the Ukrainian capital that Brussels would continue supporting and increasing our support for Ukraine. Uh, And that comes in response to a question about what Don was saying about the US decision to strip 300 million from a defence spending bill to train Ukrainian troops and purchase weapons. And to explain that a bit further, Congress passed an emergency spending bill on Saturday, which extends government funding, so basically narrowly averting a federal shutdown. But the Republicans managed, they did manage to cut aid for Ukraine from that deal. Okay, and then on to the immediacy of sort of the EU aid and weapons support comes a decision that the EU foreign ministers will hope they can unlock a tranche of 500 million euros to help fund weapon shipments to Kyiv that has been held up by a refusal from Hungary, a big shock, uh, to endorse this decision. Again, as I was referring to earlier, every time the EU makes a decision, whether it be on new funds, uh, new sanctions, it needs to be it needs to be unanimous. Um, but they think they found a way to unlock the talk. So in return for a concession from Budapest, Ukraine has agreed to remove a Hungarian bank known for doing business with Russia from a list of international sponsors of war. So the OTP bank was temporarily removed from the list drawn up by the Ukrainian National Bank. Uh, agency on corruption ahead of the EU ministerial meeting in Kyiv today. But the Hungarian government said the move would have to be made permanent in order to change Budapest's decision on the weapons fund. 
So apparently there are talks between the Hungarian government, the EU and Kyiv on what can they do? Can they basically get promises from this bank to stop doing business with with Russia? There's sort of previous allegations that this bank has uh, recognised the Russian claim uh, to the Luhansk and Donetsk region, which we know is entirely incorrect and falsified, essentially, Kremlin propaganda. So, yeah, is there a deal to be done, potentially? And we'll find out more about that. I, I can pop back later on in the week, maybe tomorrow, maybe Wednesday, and let you know on what happens as a result of those talks. But then, yeah, elsewhere, an interesting one, but Bulgaria has become the latest country to introduce a ban on cars entering its territory with Russian number plates. So the list of countries includes, so far, Norway, Poland, Finland, and the Baltic states. Um, so... And on Zlatanov, the director of the Bulgarian border police, he said, we have worked very actively from from Thursday to yesterday. uh, And I am sure by the end of the day, the ban on entry of Russian cars into our country will start to operate on the territory of Bulgaria. And I would like to add that for trucks, it has been working for several months. The EU um, introduced a ban on Russians bringing their Russian registered cars into the EU uh, last month. Obviously, there are very few border crossings now available. And if there are, if they are open, they are most likely closed. So that is part of the EU's efforts to bolster up its pressure on Russia. And it is Bulgaria's latest uh, to enforce that uh, rule. And I'll stop there, chaps. Thanks, Joe. Now, whilst we've got you, we're going to do a little bit later in the week about going to do a, a deeper dive into what's happening down in Serbia and Kosovo at the moment. Not doing it today because we've got so many other bits and bobs on, but we can't let the events over the, the weekend and the last few days go unmarked. So are you able to just give us a, a quick update on what's happening in Kosovo and the this idea that, well, the Kosovo foreign minister saying that Serbia's troop deployment on the border recalls Russia's behaviour towards Ukraine prior to the invasion. So temperatures are high. There's been an outbreak of violence. It, it suggested this is all part of Russia's attempt to destabilise the Western Balkans and have a go at NATO and the EU from that flank. What's your take on it, Joe? Yeah, so it's a really tricky situation. And as we know, it has tensions in this region of the world have been intensified um, and escalated as a result of the war in Ukraine and the Russian invasion, most likely because Russia is seeking to destabilise, as you said, the West. But yesterday, um, Kosovo's government demanded that Serbia pull its troops back from their common border and warned it was ready to protect its territorial integrity. And that comes after uh, the US warned of punitive measures against uh, Belgrade and basically insisted we don't want a war. So tensions have been high since last week when well-armed Serbian paramilitaries ambushed a Kosovan police patrol, killing a police officer, free Serbian gunmen were believed to have been killed. And that's near the uh, board town or village of... So the gun battle, it prompted uh, lots of international concern over the stability of Kosovo, which has an ethnic Albanian majority um, and declared uh, independence of Serbia in 2008 after a guerrilla uprising and the intervention from NATO at the turn of the century in 1999. Um, Serbia has pulled back some of its troops after warnings from Washington, but the the Serbian president, Aleksandr Vucic, has basically said that Serbia doesn't want a war. But what we're doing is we're seeing lots of warnings from the US, from NATO, while 
there are various different tracks of diplomacy to try and secure peace and sort of stability in there. So NATO has a force in Kosovo of about four and a half, maybe 5,000 troops as part of a peacekeeping mission there, which includes hundreds of British troops. There are EU-sponsored negotiations between Kosovo and Serbian leaders, and but they repeatedly break down. And I, so I don't follow this as a day-to-day, but often there is uh, a few people I speak to in the EU's foreign service. And we always come to this subject just to see how they're going. And there is always a breakdown. And essentially, the EU never knows who to accuse of causing those breakdowns. At one point, it will accuse Kosovo and say Kosovo is being more difficult than the Serbians. But then on the other hand, they go, oh, hang on, the Serbians this week are being problematic. I think we're going to struggle to see the EU fixing that. But it's going to take a monumental effort by all parties, Kosovo and Serbia mainly, but outside mediators to bring them to the table and de-escalate these tensions before they spill over into what could be quite uh, a nasty business at the moment. Lovely. Thanks, Joe. We will come back to this. It, it is an important topic and you can draw the dots directly through to, to the war in Ukraine. So we're going to return to that later in <clears throat> in the week. But now let's go to David Knowles. He's up in Manchester, up in northwest of, of England. So the Conservative Party that are in power here at the moment got their annual party conference up there. It's the, it's the great and the good all kicking back and going mad with their loosening their ties and what have you. David, what can you tell us about the Conservative Party conference? The new Defence Secretary has been speaking this morning. He's not said anything that I've no headline grabbing, but what's your take and how many lapel pin badges are you wearing at the moment? Zero lapel pin badges, I can say, Dom. And very good to hear Colin earlier. Do stay safe and thanks for everything you're doing, Colin. Yeah, it's interesting. It's my first party conference, so I didn't know exactly what to expect. And of course, I've come up here just to focus really on on Ukraine and try and understand the Conservative Party its evolving position and also try and get a sense from the grassroots of the Conservative Party on their thoughts on Ukraine and why they support support for Ukraine and whether that might change. And we spent most of our time in Washington asking American think tankers and politicians about their views. So I thought we'd be very, it would be very good to do the same thing here. Just for people who, like me who haven't hadn't been before to the Conservative Party conference or any political conference. It's a bit like a, the Edinburgh Festival or another music festival, but for politics. There are stands from charities, lobbying groups, there's lots of journalists hanging about, so lots of party members hanging about, trying to get a, a good view of passing cabinet uh, ministers. It's the Conservative Cinematic Universe made real. Lots of people that you see, oh, I've seen them on the news before. That's, I've heard that name, which is which is it's quite interesting. Of course, just to give listeners some context, a lot of this uh, isn't about Ukraine. The British government is well, the Conservative Party are well behind in the polls at the moment. Uh, They've been in power here in the UK for well over a decade now. There are questions about when the next general election will be called. Uh, There's all sorts of infrastructure questions that are being asked of the Conservative government at the moment. There's sort of internal tensions as well. The former Prime Minister, who listeners may remember Liz Trust, just done a fringe event that's brought large crowds to listen to her speak, uh, which does stand in contrast to the largely empty halls that some cabinet ministers are speaking to today at least. So that's the context. As I said, I I've been here just to try and understand people's views on, on Ukraine and support for Ukraine. You mentioned the new Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps. I was in a an event this morning, a fringe event with uh, Malcolm Chalmers of Rusi, and that interview will be after my bit here in the podcast later on. He was very interesting, said some extremely, I, I thought, nuanced uh, things about the war in Ukraine. But Grant Shapps, he was very garrulous, charming. He referenced his own family history as he justified his position as Defence Secretary. He told the fringe event that defence was 
a job in my DNA. And he referenced how his family actually arrived in the UK fleeing pogroms uh, against Jews in Eastern Europe in the 19th century. He praised Poland's support for Ukraine, describing it as magnificent. And he was upbeat about continuing US support for Ukraine. This is despite the recent uh, government shutdown of spending. He told uh, the Fringe event, we're a long way from the US withdrawing support. And he, he also repeated, I think, something we've heard quite a few British politicians say. He said, Putin had erred in underestimating global support for Ukraine. He didn't realise how much we'd come together. Just a final thing from Shaps, which I thought was interesting. He explained how when he met Volodymyr Zelensky, the Ukrainian president, last week, he said that Zelensky had told him that in the future a new history book of Ukraine will be written. And he said that the first page would be blank. And he would invite the UK to write that first page as a mark of how vital um, and important British support has been over the years. And so that was a a relatively moving moment. Also, he spoke about walking around his own constituency and newly appointed defence secretary. And he said that a one of his constituents grabbed his arm and urged him to continuing su- to support Ukraine. So I, th- I thought that was I thought that was an interesting point. The ordinary people grabbing the British defence secretary in the street, telling him to continue supporting Ukraine. And, and he also said that the new Ukrainian defence minister Merov had given his apologies for not being able to attend. I thought I've spoken about Shaps and his remarks there. Uh, the interview with Malcolm Chalmers will be later. I thought both. I've got a big sense over this morning. Almost every single speaker I've seen at every event has said something along the lines of this is going to be a long war. Nobody wants to put a, a time on it. Obviously they can't, but there's a, it feels like there's a growing recognition that this isn't going to be over in the next few months. We could be looking at 2024, even 2025. So that I, th- that I think as a way of framing what British support is and how British politicians are thinking of that support, I think that's really important to grasp is that people aren't, aren't thinking of just necessarily the next weapons delivery or the next billion pounds in aid or whatever. They're really looking to 2024, 2025 and beyond. The second event I went to had a much larger board, but it did include the acting Ukrainian ambassador to the UK, Edward Fesco. And he was really fascinating. He put some stats to, the event was all about reconstruction and he told the room they have 20 Ukraine has 20,000 kilometers of roads destroyed that's how much that's 70 something times the distance between London and Manchester the scale of destruction is unimaginable only people who have been to Ukraine can feel it he also talked about demining and agriculture and made the point that over 100,000 square miles of the, of Ukraine is contaminated more than the size of Wales all of this land has been taken out of productive use and i thought the most interesting thing he said actually is there was a comment of what of this sort of geopolitical placing of Ukraine in in the future and the, the a re-understanding of its geopolitical position with the West and with democracy. And he he was very interesting. He ended his first remarks by saying, "We, when we rebuild Ukraine, we have to make sure that it is politically, militarily, and economically part of the West. So we do away with all this nonsense about buffer zones, bridges between East and West, about so-called areas of influence, because that kind of approach." That's what got us to the situation where we are now. I thought that was a very interesting comment from the ambassador. Just one more person I wanted to bring a few quotes from. Alicia Kearns, MP, the Foreign Affairs Selection Committee chair, another Conservative MP. She spoke very movingly about the ongoing kidnap of children, of Ukrainian children by Russia. And she used quite quite powerful language. She said, Crimea is two things, a military base from which Ukraine is being pounded on a daily basis, targeting civilian sites, and a concentration camp for children. 
where they are not just told to learn a new language and sing Russian songs, they're being given new names, they're being tortured physically if they do not do what's asked of them. So I thought that that language, the Russians using concentration camps from, to repeat, Alicia Kern's Foreign Affairs Select, Select Committee chair was extremely interesting and shows you where I think the British government finds itself morally and, and politically in its support for Ukraine. So I think it's been very interesting. I'm going to try and spend a bit more time this afternoon talking to members and also following Grant Shapps around to try and understand what he's talking about. But yeah, that's what that, that's the idea for today is really get a sense of the ordinary Conservative Party members. Where do they sound on support for Ukraine? The impression I've been given from the few I've been speaking to so far is it's not even an issue, right? It's not something coming up. It's not something that animates discussion. It's just set. And I think that's going to be very interesting to contrast with the Labour Party conference next week. But Dom, does that give you a, a bit of a download of what I've been seeing? Is, is there anything I, I can answer from your end? It's just interesting because I'd be interested in the mood. It's You say this is the first party conference you've been to, but I just wonder what the mood is because we're about a year, maybe possibly slightly over a year away from a general election. The Tories are currently polling double-digit figures below Labour. So at the moment, it looks like this could be the last Tory conference for a while when they are in government. I just wonder if there was that mood. And a number of Tory MPs have said that they all sort of vocalised it, sometimes in jokey form. But I just wonder if there is that sort of last days of Rome feel about it, or if there's or if there's a particular energy that you can pick up on. And I just wonder, the blonde bombshell hasn't turned up yet, has he? So we're going to, I think you're going to get a possibly a fringe event from, from Boris Johnson at some point. That'll obviously be, be box office and they'll talk about Ukraine. And there, there is no difference in strategy between the different prime ministers and defence secretaries and what have you. But I just wonder if Boris Johnson, having been such a stalwart supporter and backer of Ukraine, I wonder if there's some a feeling in the Tory elite that they need to, or maybe Grant Chaps or the Prime Minister, they need to be, be seen to be really extra super duper bullish because that's obviously what Boris Johnson is going to be. So yeah, just either of those thoughts, Boris Johnson or the, the last days of Rome. It's on the last days of Rome. What, what's the atmosphere up here in Manchester? As I said, difficult to say. It's my first. I would have expected to be slightly more funereal, given the polls, given what, the, given the scale of electoral defeat that the Conservative Party may be facing. Of course, this is all heavily caveated. I. Yeah, I've spoken to a few people. They say it's a bit quieter than usual. I think, bear in mind, the big box office speeches are yet to come. And I think it'll be very instructive to, to find out just how many people are going to fill the hall when Rishi Sunak speaks in the next few days. That's going to be very interesting. I think, as I mentioned earlier, it's literally just, I think it's just finished. Former PM Liz Truss has done her event. And that was apparently a sellout crowd. There were people queuing around the block for that. And that might indicate a, a an enthusiasm for different ideas for the Conservatives in the future, even though, of course, she's a Conservative leader from the past. So it's it's difficult to say. I, I, I would have expected it to be slightly more sombre than it is. But to be honest, I've spent most of my time in, in fringe events trying to catch Grant Shapp's eye and, and speak to people afterwards. So I'll think about that a lot more for Wednesday when I'm back. And we'll be going to some events tonight and hopefully speaking to Conservative friends of Ukraine, uh, a lot of more ordinary members. That, so that it's definitely a big thing. On Boris Johnson, I didn't realise he was coming up. It'd be very interesting to hear his thoughts on the current government's Ukraine strategy and its politics. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I heard he might be, but he might be doing something elsewhere to try and grab the limelight. I'm not entirely sure, but no, do keep your eye out. You won't miss him. He's a big guy, floppy hair. And I would pay good money to see how you go about trying to catch Grant Shapp's eye, but a story for another time. Now, coming to the end, I just want to mention, we've got uh, Ben Wallace, the former Defence Secretary. He's written in today's paper 
today's Telegraph. I'd, David, I'd be interested if there's any comment on this around the bazaars. He talks about money. We went in on the headline about money. He urged the Prime Minister to spend another $2 billion on on Ukraine. I don't know why we were making such a big deal of that and, and others as well, because that, that I think is fairly uncontroversial. Last year, we spent $2.3 billion. This is the UK. This year, I pledged the same. And and there's been no decision yet on on future funding. But funding is that figure of two point three billion is about five percent of one year's British defence budget. And that figure, five percent of a defence budget, not GDP, but just the defence budget, seems to be settling down as the sort of benchmark that that is deemed deemed good solid support for Ukraine. So I don't think that was a that was particularly controversial. And of course, I, I wouldn't expect the party to, they're not going to row back on that because then they'll be accused of being weak on Ukraine and it's too early to announce funding. So I'm surprised that we made a big deal of it. Labour, again, unlikely to do anything different because they're going out of their way to, to, to say that they are very strong on defence. So if the first thing they did was cut the funding, the Tories would be straight in there to say, ha ha, look, morphine sheep's clothing, you are not, you're not strong on defence. How can we trust you on anything else? So I don't see funding being an issue, a political issue. What I did think was really interesting, though, and I actually spoke to Ben Wallace on Friday. It was bizarre. I was I was in a very fancy lingerie shop in Knightsbridge shopping when my phone went off and it was Ben Wallace. Story for another time. But anyway, he and I were chatting about the, the, the PCs got in today. And I thought the most interesting bit was his call for Ukraine to mobilise. So he says in the paper today, he says the average age of the Ukrainian soldier at the front line is over 40, over 40. Those of us of a certain age will remember that marvellous ditty in 19, where the average age of the combat soldier in World War II was 26, and in Vietnam it was 19. So to have these guys out there, men and women, average age of over 40, that is not sustainable, as in the knees will give out, if nothing else. Ben Wallace says that Russia is mobilising the whole country by stealth. Putin knows a pause will hand him time to build a new army, just as Britain did in 1939 and 1941. Perhaps it is time to reassess the scale of Ukraine's mobilisation. That is a very polite way of saying he thinks Ukraine should mobilise. Of course, there's a, an enormous economic hit if all those people who are currently working and producing material and money for the government then take up arms. So it's a big decision, but Ben Wallace there effectively calling for that in, in as many words. David, last word from you. Any news on how Ben Wallace's piece today has gone down? Is it is And if they're not, people aren't criticising it directly, any of these ideas you're hearing about mobilisation or the money? I'll be completely honest, Don, my mind has gone blank since the moment you said you took a call from Ben Wallace in a lingerie shop. I very much look forward to emails from the listeners asking more. It, but seriously, I've not heard so much. It's something to follow up in the afternoon, I think. I think this conference for politics watchers will be one, really, I think we'll see from Grant Shapps trying to establish his authority. Every single interview he starts, he gets asked, you have no military experience. You know, how, how does that work? And he has to give his answer to that. So I think we'll see Shapps trying to make his mark, stamp his authority. We, we had Wallace for many years. Uh, it, we've got a new guy now. So that's definitely something to watch. I think also just a, a quick caveat as well to our listeners. We've talked a lot about in the last 10, 15 minutes about Conservative Party Conference. And I think it's it, it may seem a little inside baseball for those people who are not particularly interested in British politics or don't know many of the characters we're referring to. But I think it's useful from our perspective because it's something we can talk about. And it gives a sense of how local national politics is moving around the issue of Ukraine and the the kind of arguments being had, the kind of things we're hearing, and therefore how policy is made. And that's really important. So we've tried to give that. That's why I'm here. That's We're trying to give you that sense of how British opinion, how British policy is moving. And, and to sum up what 
I've seen so far, it's pretty solid. These are not the questions we are asking our American interviewees, politician or non-politician. It, it, it's quite interesting, Dom, actually, what you said just then about this does this will lay down a, a bit of a challenge for Labour to say, look, this is the Conservatives can be will say we're super proud of what we've done for Ukraine. Match it. Go on. And that kind of that that's very interesting because that's going to really play forward in how the UK goes on supporting Ukraine. Yeah, that, that, that's what I think what I'd say. But I'd say to, to casual watchers of the Conservative Party conference, watch Grant Shapps, see what he says. Have a do pay attention to the sort of sh- this shifting currents amongst the Tory leadership as an election approaches, and just see what they're laying out. What they their policy on Ukraine they know is one of their most popular things that they think they've got right, and that's going to and they're, they're, so they're going to use it. So they're going to go on about it. And then, in a week's time, we'll see what Labour say. Yes, and I think just for the record, I, I don't necessarily have, have a problem with Grant Chaps not having a military background. I come from the school of thought that says you don't need to be the smartest person in the room, you just need to know who the smart people are. So as long as he's briefed and he asks the right questions, I think that's what you're after in a, in a you know, civilian political hierarchy within which the, the defence docks. No huge problem, but let's see what he says. Now, just finally, we are running out of time, but Joe, you had a thought on the Wallace op-ed. What, were you, what caught your eye? Yeah, it's a thought that I've been having for quite some time, and I've never been able to get an answer out of a British official or politician. But he, and as you, you spoke about money, Dom, and he made the issue that the UK is no longer the leading European donor of military aid to Ukraine. We know the US is well is well out in the lead uh, in terms of global donors, but Germany has recently overtaken the UK as Europe's largest donor. And uh, why is this is a question that has, yeah, it racks my brains a lot. So our defence budget, I believe off the top of my head, is actually still larger than Germany, maybe even by about 10 billion. I think there's about, there's about 50 billion euros, whereas there's about 50 billion pounds. So I think it raises questions over whether is Rishi Sulek, he's done some fantastic things like sending battle tanks, the Challenger 2, sent the Storm Shadow. Is he and his sort of economic policies to be a bit more frugal at a time, be more conservative and less free spending? We don't know, maybe. Or is it just a reflection of does Britain have anything left to give? How deep can a British Defence Secretary, Grant Shapps, now dig? Can British defence planners spare more pieces of equipment, more air defence systems, or are we just significantly not set up now for a sort of a land war? And it's maybe may something we could look at in in the future, Don, because I'm sure you'll have lots of interesting insights about why Britain is slowly falling down that kind of ladder of military support for Ukraine. It's all gone downhill since I left, but no, thanks, Joe. I just want to note that today, this day in 1901, the Royal Navy Submarine Service was founded. Now, why do I mention that? Because yesterday, British MOD announced it had awarded a five-year, nearly £4 billion contract for the next phase of the AUKUS, which is Australia, UK, US tech and submarine uh, collaboration. So the next phase of the SSN, subsurface nuclear AUKUS submarine design has gone to BAE Systems. It's going to cover development work out to 2028. And it's just worth keeping an eye on AUKUS. It is more than just submarines, but that's the big ticket item, really. Let's just refresh ourselves very quickly. The plan is that by the end of this decade, Royal Navy and US Navy submarines are going to be increasing their port visits to Australia. And then that's going to morph into what's called the Submarine Rotational Force West. That's going to be based out of Perth. There's going to be exchange posts with Royal Australian Navy personnel. 
It's expected that submarine rotational force west will be probably three U.S. Virginia-class subs and one astute, one Royal Navy astute. These are attack submarines, not not so they're nuclear-powered, not nuclear-armed. So based out of Perth. Then from the middle of the next decade, up to five Virginia-class are going to be there, operated by the Australian Navy. Meanwhile, the SSN AUKUS, subsurface nuclear AUKUS, as I said, the new boat, the next big boat, is going to be built in the UK initially. And then after a few years, the line will start in Australia, in Osborne, in South Australia. Now, the current uh, Australian Navy Collins class subs are going to run out by the mid 2040s. There's going to be an overlap. So early 2040s, you'd expect this new AUKUS sub, which will be you know, UK, Australia and US designed, possibly crewed, some sort of exchange crew, so there could be all three nationalities on board operating out of the US, out of potentially out of the UK and out of Western Australia. So by the mid-2040s, that those boats will start to come in and later on, initially in the UK service, later on in Australia service. So we'll keep our eye on this, obviously a long lead item there, but just this development of a very capable I was always told to think of the attack submarines, not as, as little metal cigar things wobbling around the ocean trying to sink other little metal cigar things. I was always told, think of the attack submarines as little bubbles of GCHQ just going around the world doing whatever the hell it is that GCHQ does. So as we increasingly look towards potential clashes, conflict, confrontation in the Indo-Pacific region, having this kind of thing operating with three three navies totally in each other's pockets and operating out of Western Australia, that is a, a hell of a capability to be bringing online in the 2040s. But I mark it and move on. Just very briefly, finally, David, any final thoughts? Just to say, we're here to try and understand the Conservative Party's thoughts and views on support for Ukraine. We'd love to hear from ordinary party members as well as cabinet ministers and, and think tankers, etc. Just very quickly as well, Joe's mentioned there some of the questions about has how... Given how much the UK, the UK has given Ukraine, what is left in our stocks? Are we replenishing them properly? Those are questions I asked Malcolm Chalmers of Rusi uh, earlier today that the interview will be in the podcast today. So do go back and listen to that. He gave some very interesting answers about that. And I think, Joe, yeah, that's absolutely the right question. And considering, again, just going back to that point I made earlier, that almost every single speaker has spoken about how they potentially do envisage this awful war to continue for the next year at least or even longer that that's that's the sort of frame that's the framing now for questions and uh, thoughts about support for ukraine it's not the next thing to get over it's looking ahead for rebuilding it's looking ahead um to support the economy or agriculture demining but also um long-term um defense projects uh from ukraine's allies around the world hi this is david knowles from manchester at the conservative party conference Earlier today, I spoke to Deputy Director General of RUSI, Professor Malcolm Chalmers, after an event with Defence Secretary Grant Shapps. One of the things Chalmers mentioned in his remarks was how he thought that the Ukraine war may have little prospect of ending soon. This seemed, to me, key to understand support for Ukraine in the UK and around the world. What does support look like when it's not just the rest of this year, but next year, and potentially even 2025? It was a fascinating discussion, and we touched upon a lot of issues. Here is Malcolm Chalmers. Well, thank you so much for your time, Malcolm. At the end of the talk, the panel we've just been in, 
you gave your assessment with appropriate caveats on the war in the next few months and maybe even years. And you said some of the indicators suggest this is going to be a long war into 2024, 2025 even. Could I just ask you to talk to us a little bit more about that? What factors, what indicators do you see that suggests that to you? I think, first of all, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has achieved something they're particularly capable in terms of hitting deep behind Russian lines and, and destroying their command and control and their ammunition storage and so on. But the Russians are reacting. At every stage in this war, the Russians are slow to react, but they do react to each change in Ukrainian tactics. And the overall position in terms of resources, especially personnel resources, is that Russia still has quite a lot in reserve, which it has not yet deployed. It's a much bigger country demographically. They're investing more and more in their defence industry. And that's being matched on the Ukrainian side, the Ukrainian's own investment, but also Western investment. But we're not yet at the stage of a major Ukrainian breakthrough which can be sustained. And uh, hope is not a policy. You need to have a sober look at the military reality. And certainly most of the people I talk to uh, in relation to the British or American military, other defence analysts who are studying this seriously, think we need to plan on the possibility or the likelihood of a war that stretches well into next year and beyond. Now, of course, something could happen, something could break. It could be a sudden change of politics in the Kremlin. Anything could happen, of course. But to plan on the basis that this is somehow going to be over in the next few months and there's going to be a collapse in the Russian military, I think would be foolish. Do you think that maybe we're seeing the strategic initiative shift towards the Russians? As you said there, depth of manpower, uh, the fact that they're playing on time uh, and we've got you know, elections in Europe and the US coming up, which may change policy, may change policy. Do you think that maybe we could be seeing the strategic initiative shift? No, I think the strategic initiative is still with Ukraine. I think uh, although there are some Russian counteroffensives, the bulk of the action is around Ukraine uh, seeking to gain more territory before the winter sets in and maybe even through the winter, but Ukraine has not yet made those significant advances. They've made advances measured in one or two kilometres, but they've not made the measure advances necessary to cut off the lines of communication to Crimea, which is the approximate objective of the counteroffensive. And time is running out, and I think there are lots of reports of poor Russian morale, but nevertheless the Russian forces are fighting bravely and often effectively the defensive barriers they have are very effective. And what we thought, or some people thought several months ago, would be a a Ukrainian advance dominated by Western armour, by tanks and armoured vehicles and and what have you, has descended into something which is much more focused on artillery and drones, snipers, explosive experts, sappers, crawling along the ground, gaining one tree line after another. None of that is to say the Ukrainians cannot prevail, uh, but it's very hard. Just a final question on this. Do you think that, from the Russian perspective, actually, General Sorovkin deserves huge praise for what he did? I mean, I, I spoke to people from the ISW who said that his defensive doctrine has been very good, very effective. In a situation where nobody has air superiority, uh, the defence has significant advantages, especially when it 
can prepare the ground in advance. And that's what the Russians have done all along the front line. They've prepared the ground very extensively. They know where everything is. They have all the aiming points. They have the minefields and, and everything else. So that does give them an advantage against the offense. And the Ukrainians, I think, because the almost the more, most scarce resource in this conflict is Ukrainian personnel. And President Zelensky, I think quite rightly, has been careful to try and minimize the number of Ukrainian casualties and has not gone with those who think you can just have a massive frontal offensive because the Ukrainian army is not the Red Army <laughs> of World War II. It cares about its people losing its young men and women and not so young men and women because they need those for, for future waves of the conflict, but also for Ukraine after this war, which will have to reconstruct itself on the basis of its skilled people. Just turning to procurement and thinking about the future and the, the lessons learned by Western militaries and societies from the war in Ukraine, how do you get politicians to sort of concentrate and think about the uh, apologies for the slightly glib expression, but the sort of the slightly unsexy side of warfare, the munition supplies, the procurement contracts, all that kind of thing? Like, how do you talk to them about that? And what do you, what lessons do you think we should be learning? The demand for more investment in munitions and stockpiles is a short-term one. People can see what's happening in Ukraine and the need for that. But it's also, to make it work, you have to make long-term commitments to industry. So British defence companies, American defence companies are not going to invest in the new people they need, new skilled personnel, the new factories they need to produce those parts and munitions on the basis of orders for two years or on the basis of orders which will only last until the Ukraine war is over and then will will evaporate. That simply won't be economic for them. So the difficulty, the challenge for Western defence ministers, including our own, is to give enough certainty of ordering orders stretching uh, through to the end of the decade. And that's a complicated thing to do. And you can't simply magic up arms supplies from nowhere. Now, there will be lots of bureaucratic and health and safety and other obstacles in the way. So uh, one of the key roles of a Secretary of State for Defence is, is to seek to break through some of those obstacles. But a lot of the obstacles are simply business obstacles, that businesses need certainty in order to invest in, in these new areas. And unless the total defence budget grows, then investing more in those areas will mean investing less in somewhere else in the British order of battle, which is a challenge because there are some big defence projects we heard from the Secretary of State about GCAP, the, the, the new combat aircraft to replace Typhoon. We heard about the new attack submarine. So the big capital programmes are still there and still ploughing ahead and going to take a lot of money. But actually investing in, in making sure the platforms we've got have enough ammunition to be used over a period of months, not just a few periods of days, is, is also going to be expensive. We've spoken quite a bit over the past years, really, about the training of Ukrainian forces by Western armies. Yeah. What, in your view, do you think Western armies could learn from the Ukrainians? What are they, the way they fight and how they're fighting? What do you think that shows us about uh, what we should be teaching our own forces? And Ukraine has a lot to teach our forces. Of course, the UK doesn't face the same challenges as Ukraine, so we shouldn't try and copy Ukraine. <laughs> they're faced with a challenge to their territorial existence. The UK doesn't face such a challenge. Our challenge is much more about deploying our forces elsewhere in support of our allies. So that's rather different. So our forces need to focus more on strategic mobility than the Ukrainians do. But I think we can learn 
a lot in terms of flexibility and adaptability and using the civil civil sector a lot more. A lot of the defense innovation in Ukraine is being driven by small companies. Ukraine, of course, one of the reasons Ukraine has survived is because they were one of the main arsenals for the Soviet Union. <laughs> so there's a big defense industry in Ukraine, large defense stockpiles from Soviet days, which they were able to use. And now they're rebuilding their defense industry. But Ukraine is spending a lot less in defense now than the UK is, and it's holding at bay, it's keeping at bay uh, one of the world's military superpowers. So it's a very impressive uh, achievement, and I think we can learn a lot from that. Maybe the final point would be that I think the, the, the wars of intervention in the Balkans, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, took uh, our forces' eye off the ball of major power war. The sort of even if it wasn't explicit, the implicit assumption was that that was no longer a problem. And even three or four years ago, all the talk was about sub-threshold conflict with Russia. Russia disrupting a pipeline, cyber attack, and so on and so forth. But now we have to reckon with the real possibility of direct conflict between conventional forces of NATO and Russia, or indeed China, which is a very different game. And uh, one of the things we learn, of course, from Ukraine is, is sustainability is key. If you haven't got the ability to keep up with your opponent and you run out of ammo before they do, then you're lost. And that's something I think we, we did forget. Obviously, the UK and its allies have sent a lot of equipment, ammunition, tanks, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to Ukraine. Are there any alarm bells ringing for you or any other analysts about looking at the, the stockpiles in the West? Are we sufficiently replenishing the, the things we've sent over? What, what do you see there? No, we're, we're, we're not. Now, in, in many cases, as Grant Shapps made clear, we'll not replace light for light mm. because quite a lot of what is being sent by the UK and our allies to Ukraine is some of our older bits of kit. But yes, we are running down much faster than we are replacing, and that leaves a real vulnerability. But I think the calculation is made, I think quite rightly, that the investment in supporting Ukraine is not only helping Ukraine, it's also depleting Russian capability and depleting the capability of our primary adversary, potential adversary in Europe is very much in our interests. Russia, over time, will be able to replenish that capability if it chooses to do so. But it will take until the end of the decade for the Russia to do that, even if the war were to be finished now. So in terms of overall capability, we have a bit of breathing space. NATO countries vis-a-vis Russia because of Ukraine's success in degrading Russian capability, especially its army capability rather than naval or air force. Is there anything I haven't asked or that you'd like to say uh, before we finish? There is so much one could say. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think there's an interesting exchange about collaborative projects with the Australians and the Japanese and and the Italians and the, the question about Saudi, but that's probably a whole separate podcast. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. 
You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Elliot Lampitt. Executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.